systemic design, you're not designing anything. You are just designing intervention into a system. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Green IO, the podcast for responsible technologists building a greener digital world, one byte at a time. Every two Tuesdays, our guests from across the globe share insights, tools, and alternative approaches, enabling people within the tech sector and beyond to boost digital sustainability. You know, when I discuss with fellow digital sustainability enthusiasts about sustainable design, I often hear these statements. It's systemic. We need to see the big picture beyond our own company, on our own clients. We need to change fundamentally the way we think design if we want to design for a better future. We must move from human-centered to planet-centered design. I couldn't agree more. But I also recall a conversation I had some months ago with a researcher in economics. We were talking about Donella Mido's book, Thinking in System. And her position was, well, let's say abrupt. It's a good idea on paper, but it's not operational. You cannot modelize it. So I was wondering, how operational is it for us working in the digital sector? How do we transform into actions the statements which I listed previously? And to answer these questions, I'm glad to be joined today by two experts in systemic design, Sylvie Domal and Thorsten Jonas. Sylvie is based in Paris, and she is somehow a rock star in France when it comes to systemic design, a field she has been investigated since the early 2000s. She wrote a book last year, 58 Tools for Systemic Design, a very technical book which has been acclaimed in the French design community. And on a more personal note, I'm so happy that we managed to record this episode, which has been rescheduled four times, I think, record broken. Thorsten is based in Hamburg. He has been in UX design for almost 20 years, if not more than 20 years. And he founded the Sustainable UX Network two years ago, a community who has gathered an impressive momentum with more than 2,000 very active members across Europe and all over the world. We share quite a lot with Thorsten, who is a fellow podcaster, a fellow speaker, a fellow community builder, in whom I see the name popping on every cool event I'd like to join. And yet, we didn't manage to meet until today, despite me spending quite a lot of time in Hamburg when I was working with my former Imovelt colleagues. So, welcome, Sylvie. Welcome, Thorsten. Thanks a lot for joining Green Iyo today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Gail. So, big, big question I stated in the introduction. How can we make systemic design operational? And maybe, maybe, before jumping on the question, maybe you should remind what is systemic design and why is it useful? Sylvie, do you want to start maybe with some kind of a definition? Systemic design is um, dedicated to handling uh, complex systems, complex questions, complex issues. It's is used mostly when you have question about any kind of subject that are involving many people, that are involving many bots. The fact is that uh, systemic uh, thinkers are people who have a special angle to see things. The system is not really existing but by its own. It's just the way that you see the things. And um, what is the big characteristic of system is the fact that you uh, identify many, many parts in a situation and all the parts are in interaction one with the other. That's the reason why it is most of the time complex because it creates what we call causal loops. It means that one cause can have a consequence. A consequence will have a cause on another part of the system and so on. So at the very end, you can see that every action, every interaction has a consequence on the whole system. So it's, um, it's a way to really uh, envision the whole situation. 
but most of the time all the all the problems are complex which makes it useful also for digital design, digital services, Orsten, I think that's something that you've advocated again and again and again in your public speaking uh, this last year, that we need to embrace um, systemic thinking also when we design um, digital services. Could you maybe elaborate a bit on this? Sure. I think one of the key things of UX design is that we we focus on on the user right we want to build great experiences great products for our users and that's that's what we advocate for and that's what we try to to make other stakeholders understand that it's that it's valuable to focus on the user and to fulfill the user's needs and we do this for for many years the problem is by focusing so much on the user we totally forget about all the other actors that are somehow influenced by the product, by the experience that we build. So all the tools we use in UX are not taking into account the systemic context of the product, of the experience that we build, right? And another actor could be a human uh, being, could also be uh, the planet, the environment, whatever. Everything that is influenced by... Um, by what we build and i think this is a really big problem because very often someone or something else pays the price for the good user experience we build for our users let's say i build uh, a nice service and a nice app for ordering my grocery groceries from home right so there are several big services out there that do this and they are advertising pretty aggressive. And you could say it's a good user experience and it's very convenient for the user. I'm just sitting on my couch. I can order my, my groceries via, uh, via app and then maybe 30 minutes later, someone shows up at my door and the only thing I have to do is walking up to my door and pick up the stuff. But who pays the price? Well, it's the delivery riders that are not paid well, that are... For a long time, even not employed, but but so-called self self-employed, these services have a very um, aggressive price policy. So it cannot be matched by by the small grocery stores we have here in our in our big cities, etc. etc. So there is for the for the convenience and for the great user experience, someone or something else pays the price, and that is something I think we in UX for too long have not taken into account. And as I said in the beginning, it's not part of our tools and we need to enhance our tools and maybe create new tools to, to put this into our work, to make in the first place, to understand the systemic con context, to understand the consequences, maybe the unintended consequences of what we build, to be able to do it better and to, to do a better job there and to do less harm in the end. And how would you do that? Do you have some tools that you like to use? And I know we could drop it later, but let's drop it earlier because uh, it makes you know, some impact, I would say, in the design world with Apple in uh, its last uh, conference uh, using, I think, at that scale, for the very first time, a non-human person now with Mother Earth. And I'm not going to comment on the message itself, but more than the way they convened the message, which was using a non-human person. Eh? Um, is it a tool that you've been using sometimes, some sorry, uh, Sorsten, or, um, or do you think about other kind of tool? It's, this is one, one of the tools, um, because... The great thing about non-human personas is that we use a tool we are very used to from our daily work and just reframe it a little bit to make to give other actors in our system um, let's say a voice right and um, it's always easier to to use an existing tool and to enhance it than introducing a totally new tool. It's easier for all of our processes. It's easier for our work with stakeholders. As you 
said a little bit it's it's there was so much things wrong about this but still it was for people like us very helpful because now people like us can go to to clients or or wherever and say hey what about non-human or non-user personas um and maybe in the past people laughed at, laughed at us when we said hey let's make a persona for mother nature or for the environment or for for trees or the river now we can say hey yeah but that's what apple did and nobody is laughing anymore so i still see a big a big advantage that that apple does this um but this is just just one tool and so it something that's very helpful for me is when um when starting working on a product or on an experience so as i said before we are focusing so much on the user and user needs and then maybe we try to align this with the business needs that someone else finds very important and so this is this is what we do and i think we need to add here what are the unintended or maybe even known consequences of these things. So what are negative impacts of this certain user need? So this is this is a tool I use pretty often and and actually a um, um, a framework I was I was and I am still working on um, to be able to see the user needs and the business needs and in the same framework or in the same canvas mm -hmm. see okay, but what are the negative consequences on a societal, on an ecological, and also on a single human level, right? Because um, very often we also build great user experiences which are in the end harmful for ourselves. Looking at endless scrolling, looking at <laughs> TikTok, uh, YouTube, uh, etc. That, that try to keep us inside of the platform as, as long as possible and stealing stealing our time. So this is a very helpful tool for me, um, mapping our user and business needs to the negative consequences of, of these. And a uh, third tool I use very often is, and that's what I used before building, building the non-human personas. Actually, um, it's also very simple mapping. Think about, put your product or your experience in the middle and then think about all the actors direct or indirect that are influenced by the product that that I built. So it's it's a very simple exercise, but it creates a lot of transparency and visibility about this. And this is from my experience very important to do these things in the very beginning of the of the design process because it helps open up our minds that are that are so focused on the users and helps us to understand okay there is there is so much more we need um we need to understand. And one last tool that is very helpful is uh, using the user journey that we use a lot in UX and adding additional layers. So, for example, which actors are influenced at this step in the user journey? What is the environmental impact at, at this step of the user journey? So it breaks the very, let's say, more high-level view from the beginning down to certain steps in the user journey and helps us to to work on certain ideas where can we do things better so if i if i wrap up the four tools you've listed there, there is obviously the non-human person eh? you, you would say that the first one you use is this kind of actor mapping like full scale actors both direct and indirect being impacted by the service uh mapping yes. yeah okay and then you have this mapping and this is well that's that's quite hard to explain i call it unintended consequence mapping okay this is what you you you've, you go from the business uh, need and the user needs and you go to the environmental and social impact yeah you can you can do this in two steps you can also map the unintended consequences without the user needs and business needs so this works also but then the next step that is very helpful is to try to find connections to to these metrics that that we use every day right the the user needs and the business needs so that's why i put this in there but you can do this in two steps and but yeah it's unintended consequence mapping and then the second step map these to user needs and business needs or connect sylvie do these tools resonate a bit or do you tend to use other tools? And I know that you've got 58 tools at your disposal, so you've got quite 
lot. <laughs> but um, does it ring a bell or are there different tools that you use? Because for, for the listeners, what I didn't say in the introduction is that, uh, of course, you know quite well digital design, but you're also an expert in the brick and mortar world, I would say. Firstly, there are much more than the 58 that I describe in the book. Uh, I, I had to, to do a selection, so I could add probably easily for 40 more. Uh, the second point is, uh, my question is a bit different from the, the, the question that is uh, the one of Thurston. My my main concern is is about um, the fact that in 2015 all the parties met in Paris for the COP the COP 21, and uh, they all decided to sign what is called now Paris Agreement. And according to this agreement, we know ha- we now have six years to um, divide our gas, uh, uh, green, we, our greenhouse effect gas, um, to divide them by two. It means that for me, any project that you can have now in a country, in a company, and could be any kind of territory, in a school, wh- wherever you work, must be in this trajectory. There is no way to think about the fact that everything that we are doing must help us to divide our emission by two. So my question is much more about how do we guarantee the fact that every project helps us to attain this goal? So my, my question is very different from uh, does it hurt someone? My question is, are we sure that we are going to uh, a place where everyone can live? You work as a consultant with uh, many companies. So how do you manage these very important goals to be taken into account and how systemic design tools help? The fact is that you start with carbon assessment. It is not mandatory in the companies in France. I cannot tell for Europe, but in France it's mandatory. Uh, so you start, that's your starting point. And uh, you check uh, from this document, that is most of the time a public document, uh, where are the uh, sources of emission? And you work with all the people who are um, involved in this um, in this emission. It can be producers, it can be providers, it can be the company itself. It can come from many, many parts. And you start uh, asking the question, how can I do better? How can I remove things? That's the first, um, yes, the starting point. Also, most of the companies today are facing lack in in many things. Um, We all know that all the raw materials have their price uh, increasing incredibly during the last few years. So the question is, how can we still produce what we are producing if the price are still um, increasing in the next months or, or in the next years. And the last point is, how can we be compliant with the, all the new rules and the new laws that are arriving and that are also putting a big pressure on the companies? And for the tools that you use, you have many tools that have been created by a guy called um, Asan Osbeken when he was working with Alexander Christokis. These tools are called um, Structure Dialogic Design, and they are based on the fact that you 
need to gather all the people who are concerned and make their talk and really discuss and make they imagine the solutions. And yes, that's the kind of uh, tools that you can uh, easily uh, use when you are working in such uh, issues. And among them, could you give us one example of a tool you used recently just to grasp it? Because it might sound a bit blurry for people not being familiar with a systemic design. And I know that for you, it's extremely concrete. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, like in UX uh, design, uh, systemic design starts with a research. So you, you have a long time researching, exploring uh, the issue. And from this research, you create what is called a white book. And a white book is a kind of synthesis of the, of the problem, of the situation, of the context. Um, this tools is given to all the people that participate to a workshop. This is a very simple tool. You can create it in, I could say, almost any kind of design project. But the fact is that it gives to all the participants the pieces of information that most of the time they do not have because they have their own expertise, but they do not know everything about the subject. So it helps to align all the participants to the workshop to have the same level of information. That's a very easy and simple tool that any designer can create. Thorsten, the um, emphasis that Sylvie has put on people talking to each other, is it also an issue you've experienced or is the flow of exchanges more, I would say, natural uh, within tech companies? It's, it's a very good question because, well, let's start with how do people work together on digital products? And that's, that's a whole topic on its own right and as long as i do my job or my work i see these problems everywhere how do people work together and how good and how do people try to understand other stakeholders in the project etc cetera, etc cetera. so this is still a big problem space and what i find very interesting about this question is now we have these well not now but Finally, we are talking much more about it. We have these fundamental environmental and societal problems that we that we need to solve to to create and or make sure us and even more the next generations have have a future. So how can we better work together on these problems, right? In an ecosystem like a company where we already have sometimes problems of working together in an efficient or let's say better in, in a in a good in a good way and that is mm, that is a huge challenge i think how how can we bring people together and that means not only people from one profession like the designers but all the people in my case that are somehow involved in the in the digital product and so one thing that i found is that we need to find ways and tools where we can gather people around. So one example from, from my work, I named it before, the, the user journey. The user journey is a tool UX designers use every time. It's a very good tool to bring in other people from, from other professions because it's, it's very easy to understand if you... If you have set up a user journey already, you can easily use it to discuss, like I said before, the negative consequences, the impacts of certain steps of the user journey with all kinds of all kinds of stakeholders. And that's, I think, for us as designers, that's an important role that we have. I think we can be the connectors. We can we can help bringing people together and work together on these problems because we have the tools that help to make things accessible and understandable for all kinds of different stakeholders. 
and sourced. And I understand that we have the tools, both Sylvie and you, you've, you've listed some in, in, with different flavors and colors, which is very interesting. But do we have the mindset? Don't we have today still very often a pushback that everything that we do in a sustainable way is more expensive, is uh, more complex, uh, is more efficient, is more sexy, whatever? Isn't it that we are facing an issue with a narrative around sustainable design and beyond sustainability at large? We definitely do. And that is um, a huge problem. We need. Yeah, we need a mindset shift in, well, at first, as I, as I explained in the beginning, at first for us as designers, how do we see our digital design, right? How do we see user experience? So that's a personal mindset shift for us. But we also need a mindset shift. And that's, I mean, that's, that's one of the big, I would say, societal questions. What is value in our society, right? And this is, this is a huge economical, whatever, huge topic we could talk about for, um, for two hours. I don't want to make it too big here. But the thing is, as you said, the big problem is that especially from the, from the business side, there is the strong narrative that acting sustainable is a good thing, but it's expensive and that it's not necessarily good for business. And well, the thing is, this is in fact not true. Um, sustainability is good for business see Patagonia for example and what I also often say is that especially in the EU where regulations are coming it's essential for your business to act sustainable because otherwise you will get huge problems with regulations and what I often do is I tell people or ask people hey you might have heard about the um, regulations about accessibility, about um, web accessibility, and all people know these these challenges. And when I tell people, yeah, think about this, and the same thing will happen with um, with web sustainability, for example, or with digital sustainability, and that's then people understand the need of of doing these things. And that's I think it's important for us to work actively on changing these narratives of on helping people to understand on stepping in and and countering wrong narratives because there are many wrong narratives like sustainability is just expensive and nothing else and this is also an, an important part well not not only for designers but for all of us right to step out of our comfort zone to step out of our standard daily work and I sometimes say it's not about designing the next product or the next experience. We need to use our gift, our tools, our knowledge to design the world around us. And we design things with stories. We are all storytellers. And there are so many wrong stories out in the world nowadays. And I think we need to use our gift to tell the true stories and to change narratives for good, actually. And this is a huge challenge I think we all face, not only designers, but where we as designers also can play an important, an important role. Staying with this mindset ID, something stuck into my mind. It was something that we discussed also previously before this recording is we need to reduce for everything we put in production, we should um, get rid of something else. And this is a very counterintuitive narrative compared to, I would say, the growth culture that uh, is still the majority approach, I would say, in almost all companies and even public uh, services. So how do you manage to change a bit the perspective, to change a bit the mindset that, hey, when you release something, you should also consider getting rid of the equivalent, if not more, because as you said previously, Paris Agreement, minus 50% um, uh, carbon emissions on top of many other environmental impacts to be reduced. So how do you help people having this slowly, I guess, painful change of mindset? I wouldn't say that is a painful um, change of mindset. The point is, as I said, um, the companies are facing many, many 
new constraints. The first one is, as I say, the shortage of raw material and the fact that uh, energy price of energy is incredibly increasing. So the point is, for the same amount of production, they pay more and they cannot have the price of their product increase at the same way. So uh, most of the time, the people that I meet are all already aware of the fact that they need to change the way their business is, is uh, run today. They know that uh, they are facing shortage. They are facing many other different issues, like the fact that the European Union uh, decided to have a plan called the, the FIT 55, which means that they decide that our emission must have been uh, reduced by 55% in 2030. So it's in six years. It means I will probably have many, many new European rules and companies know that they will need to be compliant with these new rules. So to me, they already know that um, they need to, to be much more sober that they used to, and they also need to find a way to keep their business still uh, flourishing in a very difficult context. So to me, there is, it's, not, it's not a big deal because people in the company, they are, they are aware of all this. So all the questions they are, they are asking today is how can we uh, have um, energy bills that are cheaper? How can we save energy? How can we do things better? Yeah, and also they need to recruit people and it's very difficult to recruit young talent today if you're not uh, engaged in a very social and environmental um, po policy. So yes, it's also very good for their, what we, what we call the, the brand of the company. So that's interesting because both of you, you you've listed external pressures so legal, um, recruitment issues, supplier prices as trigger for action. And eventually it's not the question of uh, how aware am I that uh, climate change or biodiversity collapse is a threat to the survival of humankind, but it's, hey, it's already on us, so we have to do something. But to do something, we need to embrace a new way of thinking and kind of reincorporating those external constraints is in a way to design things, design products and design services. Am I right to draw this parallel between what you've uh, said, both of you? Exactly the point. It's, it's not about a moral point of view. It's much more about a, a business concern. One, one problem that I see very often is that I, I agree with you, Sylvie, that there is the awareness of the, let's say, the big problem of the climate catastrophe, for example. What I see is very often a missing awareness on the level of, okay, but what's my part in this in detail? Change, unfortunately, still is too often driven by economic pressure. That's a way we all need to use to push business leaders and, and decision makers. But I would also love to have this discussion about, okay, what can be additional values to the existing ones or to the existing big value of growth that we have? And how can we align them with, with these? And I have no answer to these, but I think that's a core question we should work on or have to work on. And there is also the question of the timing of this value. My point being, what we value today, like making energy affordable for the entire humankind, was a very core value of uh, the development policy uh, in the UN. And we realize now, and I think this is something that Sylvie, you, you, you told me uh, before, that 
Very often in systemic design, today's problem are the consequences of yesterday's <laughs> solutions, and and the same goes if you 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 go in the future. But my point about affordable energy for everyone, uh, which in itself is a goal that I would uh, fully uh, support, is that um, created a massive boom in energy extraction and. You know, and energy was even energy consumption was even an, an indicator of um, economic and societal progress. So, when we value something today, how do we make sure, or how do we at least start thinking that it might not be what we value tomorrow? And it could be one of my uh, final questions: How can some systemic design tool could help us answer this question of? future versus present assessment of what is valuable? I would say that uh, probably we must not think about tools. We must think about process. Actually, the point is not only about tools. It's about the, f the fact that you succeed to gather all the people around the table. It means that when you are organizing a workshop, and there are many, many tools that you can use in a workshop. The, the big point of systemic design is you need to have people that represent all the parts that are involved in the problem, and you need to have them discuss and exchange, not only fight, you know, but exchange. Because the main point is you need to have in your workshop, the people that will implement the solutions that they are thinking about. That's the main point. It means that it's not a top-down process where you have tools and you think about anything and you design by your own as a designer. The point is that your work is to make people work together, exchange and imagine different solutions and, and from this work, they will implement themselves and leave themselves with the solution they came with. And that's the main difference because in systemic design, you're not designing anything. You are just designing intervention into a system. And your, your work is to, to have people concerned. Um, Hassan Osbegan said something that it is not ethical to intervene in a social, social, technical system without the permission of the, of the participants, of the parties, of the stakeholders, and without their active participation. And that's the main, uh, the main process that we follow. And we have many tools that we can use in workshops. Um, it can be causal loop where you show people how things are all um, connected. It can be uh, leverage points uh, inspired by the work of Donella Meadows and where you can identify the places that are crucial to change the system. It can be many different kinds of workshop tools as designers used to have because most of the time we have many, many tools. But the main point is how can we gather um, people that are representing all the parts of the system? And our job is mainly a facilitator. We, we reformulate, we, we synthesize, we plan, we organize, but we are not designing a system. So a designer in systemic design doesn't design but structure the discussion about the system. Yes, and the intervention into the system. And I really love the question about bring everyone around the table, which leads me to something super connected. Who's representing the future generations? And that might sound a bit crazy, but actually, I know that in Wales, for instance, you've got a commissioner for future generation, which means that someone whose job is to speak on the behalf of the people who are not yet there. 
Thorsten, is it something that you played a bit with? Because you mentioned it's very similar to what Sylvia uh, described, but it was at the very beginning of the of the episode when you mentioned mapping all the actors, etc. Did you ever happen to map someone from the future? Not yet, but I love I love the idea. This because I think it's it's a different level. And the first thing I wanted to say was. Okay, there are so many, if, looking from a UX perspective and looking from, we are focusing on the users so much, there are so many actors from, from now that are underrepresented or not represented in all the work we do as UX designers. So there is so much work to, to give them a voice. So, you know, for both of you, um, my idea might sound a bit crazy, but you could actually leverage it as an overtone window move, uh, which is you arrive in the workshop and you say, and by the way, we need to gather everyone, including everyone from the future. And then you've got this big like, what, 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 what? Okay, 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 I got it. So not everyone from the future, but at least everyone from the present. <sighs> okay, okay, that's good enough. That's good enough. And suddenly, boom, you've got a big win. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, Sylvie, you know, in your book, um, there is this uh, chapter, uh, System Archetype. Uh, chapter which I I love so much because it's so useful to modelize big interaction etc etc but my, my question is did you ever manage to use it to go back to I don't know some executive committee a mayor a city council whoever and say okay you know the issue you're facing at the moment is tragedy of the common is winner wins all is it, 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 how actionable are these um, uh, systemic archetypes? Uh, the, the point uh, that we exchanged was the fact that Peter Sange was the writer of a book called The Fifth Discipline. Identify, um, uh, I would say, pattern, because there are patterns that um, in system that are not working. Okay, these are patterns of dysfunctional um, system. One of them is called the tragedy of the commons. And most of the time, it's something that you can meet when you have a common common good for people and everyone is using it. And uh, at the very end, there is no more left for other people. It can be water, it can be whatever. And what is interesting in Peter Sange's work is that for each pattern we called archetype of this um, dysfunctional system, he also identifies strategy. So the way that you can intervene in such dysfunctional system. Most of the time, we as the systemic designer know them but we do not necessarily uh, put them on the table with the client because sometimes they are very complex and the client um, is not able to handle it. It's not an easy tool that you can use in a workshop. So most of the time, we as designer have this pattern in our mind and it helps us also to, to identify the good strategy. And but it's not um, necessarily a tool that we share with all the people around the table, which is different from, I would say, a persona or a, a customer journey that most of the time are very pub- publicly edited and publicly, yes, displayed. So my first thought actually was that taking the user journey or something else is something that is highly manipulated by many people and we want many people on the table. I still think from my very personal experience in doing many workshops that as a good workshop facilitator, right, you are, well, you are moderating, but you're also leading, leading the workshop. And there are quite often you have the situations where as, as, um, Sylvie also um, said 
we have the situation where we don't say anything that or everything that we know but um try to lead try to give the context that is helpful without throwing everything um to the table and i think we do this as well um also if we work on a on the user journey we want to bring all the stakeholders to the table and we use this tool to come and ground to work on i think still we as the designer we are not giving up all of the control of the of the situation so therefore my my thought was that it's not so maybe not so different because if we if we would give up full full control of uh, of the tools that we use and and let everybody do whatever whatever they want to do it won't work right and so maybe it's not so maybe it's not so different i don't know if this is a good answer but that's that's that are my thoughts actually so this is definitely a good answer <laughs> and i think we can close our very uh, deep discussions on all these tools and actually the focus that should be a bit less on the tools and a bit more on the mindsets and um and the way we gather people rather than just focusing on the tool because of course if you gather just two people in the room with the most beautiful tool i think we will miss the point with systemic design approach so thanks a lot both of you but before you leave i'd like to ask uh, the traditional closing question which is would you like to share with the listeners one positive piece of news that you heard or that you got recently on our track to create a more sustainable world and it doesn't have necessarily to be digital related but of course if it's digital related it's uh, always good who would like to start uh i can start i have two two ideas in my mind the first one is a article from uh, un that i that i read recently about the fact that uh, the cell is regreening that um for many reasons the first one that they are they have more rent there and the, and the second one is because they changed the way they they uh, they grow plants so yes it's for me it's very good news and the other one is about um, regenerative hydrology, which is a subject I explored recently, and there are many very interesting experiments. So yes, it's uh, very encouraging. One thing that immediately came into my mind, and which is not directly connected to um, to, to um, ecological questions is, I mean, you, you might know that here in Germany, we have a huge topic with, um, with a right-wing right -wing extreme party. And there was this research recently um, about, about a meeting and horrible things have been discussed there. And what gives me a lot of hope is seeing how many people going on the streets last weekend, the weekend before. And so 100,000 100, of people going out there. So the majority of the people has the right mindset. And maybe we all have different ways how to do things uh, in detail, but we have the right mindset. And it's, it's about how can we activate people how can we make people right understand okay here's a problem we need to tackle this and seeing that okay so many people understanding here is here is a huge problem and this is this is a dramatic problem and we need to act now and then people leave their comfort zone and go out to the streets so it like similar to what we have seen with the fridays for futures some some years ago seeing this power of of the people gives me a lot of hope and it gives me a lot of hope to see yeah we, we we have to find ways to to activate people for the 
for these major problems that we have. But it is possible. Yeah, and because they are minority, they tend to be more vocal than the majority. But yeah, the majority of people, they're just good folks, especially when it's about surviving or making our species survive. <laughs> surviving, sorry. Okay, um, so thanks a lot, both of you. Uh, it was very interesting to have you on the show. Um, I think I'm, I'm going to reread your book, <laughs> Sylvie, with a new angle and, and re-listen some of your talk, uh, Sorsten, with the same approach. I think the overall approach and the mindset with which we should uh, embrace this complexity of uh, understanding things in a systemic way rather than in a narrow, in silo way, um, yeah, that was enlightening so thanks a lot both of you uh, for being in the show and as usual all the references to the books the articles you've mentioned etc will be put in the show notes and now it's time to say goodbye so thanks a lot thank you gail thank you sylvie really enlightening for me as well thank you very much gail and thank you Thorsten. it was nice thank you for listening to this green io episode in the next episode, we will talk about norms and standards. This is what everyone is asking for in the green IT community. We want clarity on norms, clarity on standards, clarity on what is truly required. And I realized that, hey, not sure what is actually a standard or norms. So I will be joined by Audrey Himmer, who's a former lead at AFNOR, the French representative of the ISO network, to talk about what are the norms and the standards which could be applied in the digital sustainability area, but most importantly, how do you build a norm? How do you build a standards? Who are the stakeholders? How does it all work? And why do we have different standards, different norms? What are the different approaches, etc.? So that's a very unusual episode, but that will bring light on a much needed topic that a lot of us are requiring to boost digital sustainability. And before you leave, a small message from our sponsor. No, I'm kidding. Green IO remains a free and independent podcast, so we still need your help to keep it that way. We have zero marketing budget, so you can really support us by spreading the word. Rate the podcast five stars on Apple and Spotify. Very useful as well as when you share an episode on social media or directly with a relative. It's a very good idea. So thanks a lot for your support. It means a lot to us. Us being me, but also Tani Levitt, our amazing podcast producer, and Gilles Tellier, our amazing podcast curator. And of course, stay tuned by subscribing to Green.io on your favorite podcast platform or via the Green.io newsletter. The link is in the episode notes, but you already know the drill. Each month, you will get more insights and premium content to help you, the responsible technologists scattered all over the world, build a greener digital world, one byte at a time. <laughs>